The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on Sunday. This is Sunday. about the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. What's up? Giddy up. Welcome to Failure to Stop Night Shift. Failure to Stop, the number one show where police meets society culture tonight show is brought to you by postbed.com forward slash wolfpack that sleeps so good it's scary and uh darn it darn it if we don't have andrea in perfect internet again tonight look at her she doesn't look like a pixelated bukkake she looks like a real true crime podcaster tonight how are you doing tonight andrea like a real girl Look like a real nice, pretty girl without a 10 second delay. I love it. Uh, Listen, guys, if you want to support the show, we're up like 25% from last month, which is killer. We launched the Patreon. It's doing amazing. We've launched the YouTube paid memberships been there. There's 33 of you paid members in the chats live tonight, which is killer. Um, And we just can't thank you guys enough. The new studio that we own is going to be finished um, hopefully by Monday. We're, we're going to go live Monday out of the new studio. That's pretty epic. Um, and that'll be a lot of fun. Plus, everybody else will have their new equipment up and running. Andrea's got some camera stuff. And we've got some microphone stuff coming everybody's ways. But that's all because of you guys and all the uh, paid memberships and, of course, the sponsors. We couldn't thank you guys enough. Tonight's show is all true crime. It's the boys on the tracks. So I'm not going to beat into uh, to all the all the other things so much, but I am going to ask one thing out of you guys. If you guys will go over to the breaking points podcast with crystal and saga, it's like one of the largest news, non-mainstream media news podcasts out there. Go and give them a listen and go and give them a rating and review and drop our names. Tell them you heard from failure to stop. Say that you guys need to have the failure to stop guys on to talk some police stuff, whatever. I'd love to go on that show. Um, I think I would have a really great police perspective that they would uh, that they would enjoy. So um, if you would go over to the Breaking Points podcast and uh, give them a five star rating review. I know that there's been a lot of true crime news tonight. It's, uh, do you guys do you have any updates for us tonight, Andrea? Um, I sent you a text just a second ago. I'm not sure if you saw that. Uh, if the delay is good, if we're good, then I'm all set and I don't yeah, have any updates. Yeah, no, I don't you're actually perfect. have updates. Drew There's a missing said, boy. There's a missing boy. Where is that in Michigan? Yeah, I saw that. Is that the one you hmm. sent me? I think it is. Yes. He went missing from his campsite eight years old. I wonder if he's been found yet. I was hoping to get an update on that for me tonight, but, um, doesn't look Sorry, like I failed that. you. I know. Well, you know, what? I've been busy working on the new studio, so I didn't really research it myself. I took the lazy way out and just texted it to you like a like a lazy person does no uh, i've been swamped with the case that we're doing tonight actually and drew sent me one um that i did i just read the article i didn't look into it further but you guys might have heard about this it was uh it broke this morning there was a widow in utah whose husband died mm-hmm. uh, and she wrote a book uh, she has daughters and she wrote a book kind of for children about grief and if you lose a parent and these kinds of things. Uh, she was just arrested Monday for poisoning her husband at their home last year. Damn. Mm-hmm. Damn. How the turntides turn. How the tides turn. Yes. Mid- How the turntables tides, tides turn. turn. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, fentanyl. She put fentanyl in his cocktail. Damn. Yeah. It's too much. It's too bad. How'd she get caught? You know? Yeah, it said in here. Um, there was reports, though, from his friends that said that he thought she was going to poison him. So that's where I get a little. Uh, I think. Yeah, she said that she made him a drink. I think it was a little questionable. I never knew this case when it happened last year. But I guess she fixed him a drink that he asked for. Uh, she said that he drank it and like went to bed, but that she was cuddling their daughter in the daughter's room because the daughter was oh, sick. Man. And she said something. She didn't have her phone with her, and she just assumed he fell asleep or something. But then you find out her phone's not where she said it was. And uh, she had been making, like, there were a million, like, texts that had been deleted and phone calls to an undisclosed name. Come to find out this person is a dealer, and then they track it all back, and now we know what happened. How long do you think until Ashley starts poisoning me? How many? If years you do don't you quit making her have babies sooner rather than later. Maybe she likes babies. Maybe she asked for them. She she's likes kind of rapey. her babies. She's, she's kind of rapey. She likes you know what's babies. sad though? Um, and I still haven't done the Patreon on it yet, but I'm about to. Um, is that people are like editing, like uh, bleeping out the word rape. I can't say rapey anymore. I'm really, really, really over bleeping out words. It's got All to stop. Words. It's got to fucking stop. I don't, it's, it's got to stop. I'm going to do a whole Patreon. I'm going to go scorched earth on that uh, as soon as I get moved into the new studio. So um, anyway, thank you, Master Sarah Kelch for being in the chats tonight. Uh, Falconator, Will Cray, TJR, Crockett Cassidy. I saw my, my boy, Andrew Towel or Toll just became a new paid member. Thank you guys so much. Oh, nice. For John from Com Center. We got Jay Nick, Jacob Nichols in the house and David O. I'm surprised that he's with us tonight because he bought a ghost bed pillow from our sponsors. And uh, listen, it's hard for me to get up in the mornings. That damn ghost bed pillow is so fucking comfortable. That ghost bed mattress is so comfortable. It's hard to get up out of bed in the morning. It's just too comfortable. It's so great. But you know what? I feel refreshed every day. Once I do get my ass out of the bed and I get that coffee in me, I feel great. I really do feel that there would be a lot less mental health issues in the world be a lot less crime in the world if everyone slept on a ghost bed. And we appreciate ghost bed and everything that they do for us. Let's jump into tonight's topic. The boys on the tracks. Now that sounds like a CD album from 1992. Holy cow. This, we say it every week, this case didn't get a ton. I mean, there's research out there, but it doesn't, you'd think it'd be up in one of the few that, you know, like you just recognize the name or the location because of how crazy this is. You, I say it a lot. I'm not joking. When I say we could have had multiple, multiple shows on this, there are multiple podcasts. Like I said, news articles, things like that, because it is so in depth and the level of corruption and cover up, there will be more shows. We will be doing more at some point um, down some of these rabbit holes, not even rabbit holes. It's just very obvious corruption but it's so much that will blow your ever-loving mind. And this is not a political show, meaning not just one party is implicated here. You'll you'll see it's uh, gross and it's crazy. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about, the boys on the tracks. Yeah. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's jump into it. You know how M. Night Shyamalan always has like one version of a type of movie that he makes? I feel like 90% of the true crime that you and I have covered should be a movie of some sort. I feel oh, yeah. like if I'm some kind of crazy producer, director guy, I mean, oh, yeah. these are like, all good movies. 
it's like shooting fish in a barrel, man. Like just it grab is. any of these cases and make a movie, whip it out. You don't have to be creative. Instead of remaking no. all the greats, instead of remaking the Goonies and trying to remake Power Rangers and trying to remake everything else, let's be original, man. Like, oh, gee, just rip on some of this crime that's already happened. I mean, it's already happened. Okay, look at me. I'm putting on my notes. I've got little notes. I've got big notes. Um, But let's go back and take it back to 1987 when this happened. All right, you guys, you ready for our- Ooh, What our, happened in 1987? Pop culture review. We need an intro for the pop culture review. We know pop this, right? culture review. Um, 1980s <laughs> culture review. <laughs> this was when uh, Andrea would have been 47 ish. That was a good year. 47 ish. <laughs> she just started menopause that year. She was getting hot. Yeah, flashes. that was tough. That was a little tough. I'd work through that. What happened in 1987? Okay, well, so the, the movies blown away here. You ready? All Did right. you even know how good of a year it was? So I, here's something. Here's something that I've noticed with all this true crime is that every year that is banger for movies is also banger for true crimes. Like for murders. Crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Would that be a shirt from Earth that's like uh, movies with the greater than symbol and murders? Like movies greater than greater murders. than movies, better than I don't know. We'd have to work with it. We'd have to have somebody more creative than us go and do okay. that. Okay. Well, I don't care so much about this movie, so don't come at me if you do. But Moonstruck with Cher was ninety was eighty seven. Um, but you ready for this? My second favorite movie of all time on the history of the Earth. Okay. Dirty Dancing. Oh, Dirty Dancing, great movie. Yes. Well, Tom, um, Tom Cruise, right? The Tom Cruise. Have no, you lost uh, your mind? It's not Tom Cruise. It's um, the dude from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't. I forgot the guy's name. Who is it's it? It's Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze. Yeah, he's Get dead, Patrick's right? name out your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was one of those guys. Yes, come on. Three men and a baby. Mm, mm, that was a good movie. Gosh, I haven't seen movie. that one probably since 1987, to be honest. It's a good one. I remember when I was young thinking it was crazy that drugs were stuffed in diapers. Ooh, ooh, that kind of goes along with our show tonight. I didn't even know it. Okay. Uh, fatal Attraction, y'all. Okay. Can't Buy Me Love, The Lost okay. Boys. Oh, Fatal Attraction was a good movie. Yeah. And The Lost Boys? Damn. The Lost Boys is really good, too. Damn. Yes. Uh, I might um, watch Lost Boys tonight. You should watch Three Men and a Baby. That is funny, but I don't want to watch that one with Ashley. Yours is like five babies and one man. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Aretha Franklin became a part of the, Hall, the Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Fame. Uh, the Bad Album came out from Michael Jackson. Mm. Uh, yeah, so get this. I'm not sure that I ever knew this. First of all, I want to dance with somebody by Whitney Houston. Um, but I didn't realize that she had auditioned for the Cosby show. So yeah. she auditioned for that, but then she left to focus on her singing. Um, GNR, Appetite for Destruction. God, I didn't even read Lastro Lopez comment in the chats and I just blasted it to everyone. I apologize. My God, man. My God. I didn't read it. I'm not reading it. It was funny, but very, um, walk like very an Egyptian, Meh. living on a prayer, a alone by heart. Guy. He is dark. Oh, do you mean his humor? Yeah, very dark, very dark humor. <laughs> <laughs> God. 
I'm not even going to read it. I'm not even going to read it because no. it's just that fucking um, All right. So, ooh, Brian Adams into the fire. Gotta love it. Uh, Mike Tyson. Uh, the Mike Tyson game. Ooh. Cell phones were around, but not, it was the brick, right? Uh, monthly service fee at the time was about 150 bucks, 50 cents per minute. Uh, I'm getting bored with some of this. The release of the Final Fantasy video game. The short skirt was in fashion. Oh. Men had the denim jacket. So what about this? The Simpsons. The Simpsons uh, first appeared in a program called The Tracy Ullman Show, if you guys remember that. Uh, it was like 48 shorts, but that was 1987. Full House made its debut. Teenage, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. DuckTales. Oh, DuckTales. Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Full House was 1987. Mm -hmm. I just said that. Oh, I love Full House. Love Full House. I did, and, yeah. All uh, right. No, that's Say by the Bell. Uh, when was Say by the Bell? Say by the Bell started with the bell. Oh, when was it? Yeah. Probably not long after that. Oh, so Michael man. Jordan was God, on the rise. Um, he was 24 at this time. Of course, he was with the Bulls, scoring around 37 points on average for each game. Oh. The GOAT. Mike Tyson was 21 at the time. Damn. Uh, that's crazy. He was just full on at that time doing all of that's his things. Crazy. And we will finish it up with that was the year of Ronald Reagan's Berlin Wall speech. Mr. Oh, Gorbachev, yeah. tear down yeah. this oh, wall. wall. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Now 30-something years later, we're like, build the fucking wall. <laughs> it's a different wall. Build a fucking wall, please. We're full. Okay. I'm hot already. We just started. You're having hot okay. flashes again. Having men going back through menopause. Menopause round two for Andrea. Uh, Detzloff, Axe Man Carry, $5 super chat. He says, Would love to stay, but I have to get back to work. So reruns for me. Hashtag keep fighting. Damn, freaking thanks for bailing early. You know what? It's like church. Like if you're going to bail early on church, maybe the waves are really good or, you know, maybe your favorite fishing holes firing. You just tithe a little more and then skip out. That's the way it should work. It's like, eh, we got an early game today. I'm going to tithe 20. Bounce out a little early. Huh? He tithed. I know. That's what I'm saying. That's why it's perfectly fine that he left. I'm sure Jesus probably feels the same way. Like, sure. Yeah. You want to leave church early? It's fine. You want to drop 20 bones on your way out? Even better. That's two two less years in purgatory for you. Great job. All right. The boys on the tracks. Let's go. Let's go. So we're going to be talking about Alexander, Arkansas. All right. Alexander was uh, in or is located in central Arkansas. I think their current uh, population is only 3,300 people now. Uh, so it was actually just built as kind of the town was really built as a uh, kind of a camp, a campsite for construction while the railroad was being put through there. The railroad going through that town is pretty much the only thing uh, going forward at that time. And it is actually paramount to this story and many others. It's kind of an infamous railroad at this point. Um, it spans Pulaski and Saline County. Saline County is where this crime took place. Uh, like I said, it's got around uh, 3,300 people in the year of the 2000 sentence, uh, census, excuse me, there were 614 people. So that's how much it's grown in the last 20 years. Okay. So you can imagine prior to that, there were not, not many people around at this time. So teeny tiny town. 
And we're going to go back to August 23rd of 1987. Okay. Right. So a big train, a 6,000 ton train is barreling down the tracks. It's late uh, or early, if you will, around like four in the morning. Um, as the train gets going, it's a Union Pacific cargo train. And so it had come, it was making its way back to Little Rock. This town is not too far from uh, the town of Little Rock. Okay. Train was over a mile long. It was traveling around 50 to 52 miles per hour. Okay. Ooh, remember 50 to 52 later. I'm going to come back to that. Um, so it had been a clear night. They did say darker than usual. You know how some nights with the stars or cloud coverage. The illumination seen... was low. It wasn't a full yeah. moon. The moon was, you know, Correct. maybe it's covered by some cloud cover. It wasn't a lot of illumination. Yeah. If you darker will. than usual. Okay. Um, there was a seasoned engineer, Stephen Schroyer, uh, who was, uh, the conductor of this train that night. And so as he got toward Bryant, Arkansas, the town in question, um, they go through Alexander and he could see something in his path. Uh, and they're used to seeing livestock or, you know, oh. deer, an occasional cow, these kinds of what? things. Does it so mess it's up not, the train when they hit a cow or, or something like they that? They have the, um, cow, the, the cow, what is it? Cow pusher cow. Uh, it's got a name to it, but it's like that, the iron like grate that comes to a point. Oh, does it just fuck up the cow? Like well, beyond the all point repair? is, to, the point is to get it, uh, off the tracks. So since it comes to a point, it generally speaking will kind of uh, pop it and like toss it off. The <laughs> like you know, it'll pop down the side of the train and come Man, off. Is there any? I want to. I'd love to see a video of that. Oh yeah, I'm sure I'm doing tonight. I know what I'm doing tonight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's wild. Uh, okay, I never even think about that. Sometimes, yeah, and sometimes with like a deer, uh, it will occasionally goes go. Sometimes it doesn't work the way they want it to, and they don't like it. Doesn't get spit off to the side. It might go under, in which case that causes a very specific noise as well. These are important oh. details because these men have experienced these things on this train, so they kind of know what they're used to hearing, what they're not used to hearing, and they're used to keep this in mind because a point comes up sometimes when reading about this case that occasionally the the there's not really much pushback, but if there is, in terms of the uh, the testimony if you will of the conductor and, and the four there were four men in the um the engine of the train at this point so four men saw what he saw and people will say well it just wasn't a lot of time you're traveling so quickly uh, to be able to speak in detail um i'm sorry i think that there are some other people in the studio um to be able to speak in detail on what they saw but they say no 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 like what they do for a living is literally to look ahead of them right i mean it's very important that they see what's on the tracks at all times uh with bright lights so uh so they know what they're talking about so as they approach they make a horrifying discovery that it's actually not one but two human beings um and they are teenage boys uh it's wording is a little mixed up as to whether they initially testified that they knew it was teenage boys. It doesn't matter. They saw two male humans lying on the tracks. Right. He said that three to five, he's actually got a quote in here where he said, uh, he talks about, well, it doesn't matter, but he said, basically people will say three to five seconds isn't long enough to identify things like this in this detail. And he said, but when you're approaching a human being on this railroad track, uh, he said it felt like an eternity. 
And so I think you got hyper-focused. Uh, we talk about that. You yeah. talk about that sometimes uh, with like adrenaline with certain circumstances. He said that he could see two. We now know teenage boys. Um, it was Don Henry, uh, 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives. Uh, they were lying on the tracks on their backs. Their heads were on the um, the Western, the, the train runs uh north and south so this was a western eastern railing so their heads were on like the western railing uh yeah. propped up on that with their kind of legs like bottom half of their legs dangling dangling off the eastern half so if you can picture so like their, their torso lying, their torso yeah, is completely the on the track so they are okay. perpendicular to the track wow. lying completely across it they are lying side by side like arm to arm arms down by their sides lying on their backs tell me they were just uh, taking selfies Right. Except for their, their arms way. were down by their sides and they didn't move. So the oh. second he sees them, he immediately is hitting the brakes and blaring the horn. Right. But we all know a train cannot stop on a dime like that. So uh, sadly, the train does run over the boys and stops about a half a mile away. The minute the train comes to a stop, uh, Stephen Schroyer alerts authorities they get there around 4.30 in the morning, I think. It was like 13 minutes after he called. So a really quick response. They're there. He immediately was already trying to figure out and process what he had just seen because they didn't move a muscle. No one flinched. No one anything. While they are waiting on authorities for that about 13 minutes, he and the other men go back terrified of course about what they're going to see when they made the 911 call there was talk of you know is there a chance of you know do we have any victims or survivors and uh he just said you know there no it's certainly death we they went under the train it's certainly death so this poor man had to know that he ran over these boys right so john if you ruin the show by putting spoilers in the comments yeah, going why the away. fuck would you do that? Out. <laughs> Kicking you up. out. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so the conductor's out, and they're looking around trying to find anything. Uh, so they go about a half a mile back from where they originally ran over the bodies. They do find um, a partial torso and head of one of the boys. Uh, the mm. first thing they came around was some uh, uh, toes actually. Um, and then some teeth anyway. So they're just kind of, these poor men are finding things that they are not, it's not in their job nature to be needing to find, uh, authorities get there. Uh, this would be the Saline County Sheriff's department is who is, who's going to be covering this case. And so they get here and, um, they all just kind of start talking about what they're seeing. So let's back it up and talk about these boys a little bit. And then we'll come back to the actual scene of the crime. Like I said, they are 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives. These are uh, best friends. They were kind of popular boys. They were both seniors that year at their local high school. They liked to hunt. They both had girlfriends. They hung out all the time on the weekends. Uh, they often would um, double date with their girlfriends on the weekends. This particular night, they decided just to hang out together and go visit some other friends. Um, so that night, they had gone to Kevin's house and um, Don's mother knew that that's where they were, or excuse me, they had gone to Don's house and Kevin's mother knew that that's where they were. 
They get back to his dad's house around like midnight, I think. He and his dad, Don and his father, get in a little bit of an argument. It wasn't really a big deal. And he left. And the dad knew he was leaving. He told him to, you know, be safe or whatever. So they just kind of head out. Well, they took with them a big spotlight and um, his 22, Don's 22 rifle. So if you know anything about hunting at all, it's an illegal practice. But spotlight hunting is if you go out at night and generally speaking, it would be deer that you're hunting. And when you shine a spotlight, often even out of a car window, um, the deer will freeze and then you shoot it. Right. So it's it's illegal. You're not supposed to do it, but people have done it. Probably this is pretty rural area at that time. I think, you know, it's not unheard of that that was the first time. Uh, first time I've ever had like a real run in with the law was for spotlighting deer. Did you really? Yeah. He impounded the truck. and, and Yeah, they will. Like, oh. Well, we, you know, but we weren't shooting the deer. We were just out spotlighting oh. uh, and we were with some girls and they were in a truck in front of us. And did anyone um, have a gun? we had it we did have a gun with us yeah um well because i was so wondering the, how they could yeah go ahead sorry uh so the girls were in front of us in the pickup truck in their truck and we were behind them in our truck mm -hmm. and we had been spotlighting deer like all night just having a good time we didn't shoot anything <clears throat> it was more like mudding on the trails than anything like yeah. it was just we wanted to be out, out on the trails with the girls and it was fun and creepy and whatever it's just yeah it's the thing that we did and they had sped ahead. They had like gone ahead of us a little bit and gotten out in front of us. And they came to the head of the trail and then they button hooked left and then just stopped. And we're sitting there with all their lights off waiting for us to come out onto the trail and then out onto the road. Well, the last hundred yards of the trails, there's no real big ruts or anything. And so he was trying to catch up to the girls. So my buddy floors it in his truck, hammers okay. the gas and we spin around the curve sideways only to meet them sitting there without any lights on. And we smash into their truck and they had to cut the one girl out. And uh, the paramedic was the girl's mother. And she finds out that she's cutting her girl, her daughter out of this truck. And it's, you know, you know, and so she's yelling and she is yelling at the other girl. I'm like, what, what are you guys doing out here? What are you even doing out here? And she was like, we were just out spotlighting deer. And the cop was like, uh, excuse me, what were you doing? And it didn't matter at that point that, you know, we said that we didn't shoot anything. They, uh, they impounded the car. They took us all home Dang. to our parents, never got the truck back. My buddy never got the truck back. And yeah. Unfortunate event. I, we were like maybe 17, maybe probably still 16. And, uh, yeah. That's terrible. That was, it. was she okay? Yeah. She was fine. Yeah. She just couldn't get out because the door had, they, they couldn't get the door open. And, um, yeah her legs like the frame like was bent pinned. or something the, the, yeah, her, her legs were pinned pinned down there but thankfully it was actually a, there was a there was a bible down there and they said like had it not been for the bible to like cushion her legs like her legs would have probably oh, wow. like, broken or something you know but, Ugh, wow cool. That's but anyway cool. yeah but we were in a lot of yeah. trouble a lot of trouble um so anyway yeah, there we go there's my story about spotlighting deer well there it is so uh they, the engineers talk, and I don't know the term for all the men in the engine of the train. Okay. So I'm calling them all engineers or conductors. So that's what we're going with. Uh, so they mentioned that as they approached, they saw the two boys. It's important to note, like I said, how they were lying positionally. They were on their backs, side by side, arms down by their side, face up. They also had uh, a green tarp. Every one of the men in the engine of the train witnessed and testified to have seen a green 
tarp, a dark green tarp, partially covering their bodies. It was pulled up like almost toward their chests um, from the feet up. Okay, so they also saw, a, we later learned, was a 22 uh, lying beside one of the boys. All right. So those are the things they noticed their position, the green tarp and that 22. They actually are alerted to the 22 because they saw as the train was approaching in that very quick clip, uh, what looked like a light shining. And it was just where the light of the train was reflecting off the metal of the rifle. Mm. Um, and so they noticed that pretty quickly. So as you can imagine, chaos ensues at this point, they're starting to, they meaning, um, um, Kevin's parents are starting to kind of look for him. They think he'd be back by now. So she calls Kevin's or Don's father to see if the boys had come back there. Uh, and he said, no, like I thought they were coming to your place. They left here. And so she sets out to drive around them. And then uh, his dad's looking around for them as well. So you've got these parents on the road and then word of mouth, different things. But Curtis, that's Kevin Ives' father calls or excuse me, I keep doing that. It's Don Henry's father calls Kevin's mother to say they were hit by a train. Um, they were hit by a train and like basically like they're dead. They were shot and hit by a train, I think he said initially. She at first was actually like kind of relieved because she didn't believe it. And she had been concerned that they'd go out and get in a car wreck or something like that. They were still pretty new to driving and those kinds of things. And so then, uh, obviously, we find out that that's exactly what happened, and the um, the the boys go to the medical examiner. So at the scene, uh, police kind of get there, clean it up pretty quickly, and get the boys out to the ME. The ME uh, in question is a man. <sighs> I don't even. There's going to be a lot that we talk about here. So Dr. Malik is his name. It's Fami Malik. And he uh, had been in town. He had been appointed um, years prior, quite a few years prior. And he was actually the state appointed ME. So, you know, we've talked about different jurisdictions in different states handle this kind of thing differently. So in Arkansas at that time, I don't know how they currently do it, but it was everything would be funneled through this state appointed uh, ME. So that would be Fami Malik. He yeah. immediately looks at the boys, does his examination. He does some toxicology on them and comes back to say that they, <laughs> bear with me because these were his words, that they had smoked 20 joints between the two of them. Somehow he was able to come to this conclusion with his THC <sighs> toxicology. So they had smoked 20 joints. 20 joints. And that um, as they, even as the parents come as the parents come back to kind of question that because they're like that just doesn't sound right he said that they fell into a thc induced coma and um and just fell asleep on the tracks like both of them at the same time right beside each other um you know a, a thc coma is not really a thing i'm sure you could have so much that you're incapacitated or you fall asleep um a train would wake you or up maybe you make out with a cicada or something like that i don't know, like maybe one night you get so high that you make out with a cicada bug on the front that would porch be crazy for i don't by staring at me while you're doing it like that would kissing be a cicada bug 
That's you're that horrible. high. That sounds extreme. I think actually. Sounds like twenty we've joints. Taken liberties. Sounds like twenty joints. <laughs> we've taken like... some liberties. <laughs> um, so the but he says twenty joints, and he said that they had gotten, like I said, into a THC induced coma. Um, super weird. He later he later then changes his verbiage to say that they, uh, per his measurements, they each they had a hundred units of THC. I've, I've never been, I've never heard THC measured in units, um, mm-hmm. milligrams. Wow. Sure. Uh, not units. So that's very interesting. Um, in terms of strength. So the parents are just not buying this. They're like, I, I don't believe this. And this guy seems so that is bizarre. The guy seems just super wackadoodle. So he immediately says at first he rules, he rules suicide. And they're like, wait a minute. No. Somebody in the live chats that I've never seen before, Lillian Lee, uh, says that Clinton was governor at the time and Hillary stated 600 marijuana joints. Yeah. So we were going to talk about all that. Yep. Oh. Yep. Clinton was governor at the time. Didn't we just um, cover another case that happened in the 80s in Arkansas that was kind of bizarre? And I asked probably. you if the Clintons were. I don't know. Probably they all. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. They all run together for me. But yeah, Clinton was governor. So to. OK, so I was going to come back to that. But Clinton appointed that M.E. Uh, because he was governor at the time when okay. that uh, guy came. Um, I'm going to turn off the jets because they're distracting the hell out of me. What's Let going me on? Tell my story. I said I'm just turning off the chat so I can tell my story. Oh yeah, um, don't, yeah. Don't don't worry about the chats. So uh, anyway, so there we go. There we have it with him. He even got pretty aggressive. The more the parents pushed back, and the more the parents were um, not conceding to what his diagnosis was, he would he would do things like show them pictures of the autopsy, and they would say no, like they didn't want to see this stuff, or he would. Um, uh, one time I think he had a jar in his hand and like, like kind of poked at the jar and kind of made reference. Like that was the tissue from one of the bodies. Like the dude was wackadoodle. Uh, and he's saying all these super crazy stuff. So, um, anyway, some, a few months go by about five months later after their deaths, Kevin and Don's parents had a press conference. They were hoping that by doing this, they could reopen this examination or this investigation because, uh, at first, like I said, Malik ruled it. Uh, he was going to say it was suicide, which that just didn't make any sense to either one of them. And then he finally said that it was accidental death, meaning that they had accidentally ingested so much THC. Like I said, that they had fallen into a coma and onto these train tracks side by side in a coma. Right. Um, that is so, so bizarre. So yeah. Bizarre. So they're, their plan for the press conference worked because the case was reopened the very next day. So Richard Garrett was the newly appointed prosecutor at that time. Now you guys are going to have to keep on track because this is, we've talked about the whiteboard flow charts and diagrams. This is one for the records. Okay. So Richard Garrett, the new newly appointed prosecutor, he had the boys' bodies exhumed. Um, They were going to have a second autopsy by a different guy. Okay. Uh, the parents at some point paid for testing to go outside of the state. They were paying up to like 200 bucks an hour for some of this stuff. They were doing everything they could to try to get things out of their local agency. Um, so when they 
exhumed them and autopsied the second time, this doctor said that together, maybe they'd have had one, one to three joints uh, based off of the, the dosage and the milligrams and whatnot when he went back and reread the findings from the toxicology and things like that. He was like, no, there was nothing like 20 joints. That doesn't even make sense. So he completely um, debunked what the first guy had said. Um, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the friends that had been with them that night said that that was true. They said they probably smoked a joint or two. So they said that was, uh, they uh, corroborated that. They said that uh, the newly appointed um, examiner found that the original guy did not use proper procedure when, when doing this, when following his, when conducting the autopsies. Um, they said that it was other medical experts said it was highly unlikely. We know this for someone to pass out from smoking marijuana, um, particularly two people at the same time. So in, in 1988, in July of 88, this happened in August of 87. All right. So we're on okay. up to almost a year later in 88, the grand jury did reverse uh, the original ME's uh, finding and ruled their deaths probable homicides. Now these guys, the ruling on their deaths, uh, is going to change a few times throughout this throughout this um, saga, if you will, in the in the late eighties and early nineties. Um, so then Garrett, that newly appointed prosecutor, started focusing on that tarp because that tarp was never recovered. The one that the engineers said partially covered the boys' bodies. Uh, they couldn't find it anywhere, not even a piece of it. There there was nothing to prove that it had been there other than their statement. But again, there were four of them that all vehemently said that they saw it. So, of course, they're searching under the train. They did all the things, but it was nowhere to be found. So Garrett now starts talking to local authorities about that. Like, what, you know, was that in evidence? Did you find it anywhere? They start pushing back. They start actually, at first, they question, they question whether or not it was there. And then they state basically that it wasn't there. They're essentially calling these men liars. They said, nope, uh, there was, what? you know, basically they, 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 they're seeing things. Uh, and I think when you say things like that, like to what point, like why would they benefit from saying that they saw a green tarp if they didn't see a green tarp? I mean, there's, if there were one of them saying it, maybe he just misread the situation or, you know, his eyes played tricks on him, but four of them agree. So he immediately shut that down. And this will be the, the first you're hearing of complete um, control of this situation that the local authorities had. All right. Um, so he totally says that that's not going to be the case. Um, Steven still says, and that's the, uh, Steven Schroyer, if you remember, was the conductor that they continued to question the existence of the tarp at all, but it was never found. So one week before Kevin and Don were murdered, um, there was a man wearing what they just referred to as, uh, uh, military fatigues. All right. So some kind of camo, something going on walking up and down the tracks with a gun. This was a week prior. He was kind of acting in a suspicious manner. So police were kind of called to question him. He opened fire and ran away. Like, so the police pull up, he opens fire, runs into the wood line. Whoa, they never shit. find him. All right. So they never, ever show him or find him. Excuse me. They searched the area after some more um, officers showed up and nothing. So the night that Kevin and Don died, witnesses say that they had actually reported, there were people who reported seeing a man in military fatigues that same night. Um, but this time he was leaving town and he was heading down 
a road pretty close to where their bodies were found. I think like 200 yards from where their bodies were found. Was his Still, name John? Was his name John Jay by chance? John Jay. Yes, it was. John Jay Rambo. Um, John Jay Rambo. That's what he was wearing, like just green fatigues and walking out of town. And the local yeah. sheriffs were trying to talk to him and just thought leave he was alone. weird. Leave the man alone. Just leave the guy alone. Let him Rambo. Rambo's got a Rambo. <clears throat> Rambo's got a Rambo. Okay, so uh, are we going to hear more about this tarp or are we just done with the tarp thing? Because that's Maybe. bizarre. That's bizarre. Like, why Maybe. would three dudes lie about seeing a green tarp? Yeah, four dudes. And then, like, I mean, a green tarp, could it have been a green poncho? Was it laying on the ground? Like, where was the tarp in comparison it to was, the bodies? It was partially covering their bodies, like, from their feet up to almost to their chest. Um, one of the guys said almost reminded him of a boat cover. It was just a large tarp, a uh, dark green tarp. Wow, covering their legs. Just kind of pulled it. It sounds like it had been pulled over their bodies and maybe the wind or something like that. It wasn't fully covering their bodies or someone left in a hurry or something, but you know, it was kind of partially. So they would have been dead when the train hit them. Yes. So we're, we're going to pretty much get to that conclusion right off the rip, but let's, let's talk about that's good because it would have sucked if they were in some kind of marijuana induced trance. I don't believe that theory. That theory is out of here. I mean, 20 blunts, dude. If I didn't decide that I was going to start saving my notes, that's where I would ball it up and throw it because I'm done with that theory. Um, so uh, in October of 1988, uh, Joe Burton was the expert pathologist this time on the case. He found what he considered to be a stab wound in Don's back and a wound to Kevin's cheek. He... Okay determined that there were tears in Don's t-shirt that would be um, the likelihood of a stab. Okay. It wasn't from the train being, uh, uh, you know, tossing them around. I and mean, of course that's going to make a mess, but this looked much more like a sharp force injury, um, like slit in the shirt. And so it said that they think that he was, that Don had been stabbed in the back with a large knife, but that Kevin had a bear, apparently been struck in the head with a rifle butt, possibly his own. Oh. Um, the wound to his cheek matched the shape of the rifle butt. There was and also that will con- split a dude. That yeah. will split a dude's face open really, really quick. Mm-hmm. Well, there was also congestion in the lungs, and we've talked about this before. When you hear the word congestion, it's kind of what you think when you think of fluid, like in your your nose if you're congested. But when you're talking about in the lungs or other organs, it's it's different types of fluid, and mainly blood is what we're going to be talking about. So the high congestion in the high amount of congestion in the lungs indicates that they were they had already been hurt or killed prior to dying. Um, from that train because it, it happened so fast. They were out there. They went to the ME very quickly. It wouldn't have had time for the congestion to appear in the lungs that way. So that's one thing that kind of shows that they don't think that the timeline occurred when it did, meaning they didn't die when the train hit them. All right. Another thing that we didn't talk about, but at the crime scene, the one, one of the uh, sobering things for the conductors was that, As they walked back, I told you they so apprehensively walked back the line of the train to find what they could find. And they immediately were very surprised at the lack of blood they were finding. Uh, Generally speaking, this would cause 
a lot more blood and they were used to doing, they were used to seeing, you know, like I said, cows or deer or other things get hit by the train. And so they were very surprised by that. And when the EMTs got there, they noted that they were surprised at the color of the blood that they did see because it was very, very dark purple, black indicating Mm -hmm. that it had been there for quite some time. Um, because as the oxygen leaves the blood, right, guys, it turns from a bright red to a darker purple kind of color. So they would have assumed for the blood to be quite a bit brighter upon getting there 10, 15 minutes right after the death. So we've got now that that blood usually like in a big scene like that, the, the, the blood almost glows on the, Mm -hmm. on the grass. Like when, um, when light car accident that, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, it's really easy to, to follow the trails there. So, you know, I can see exactly, I kind of tell, you know, from my experience in dealing with fatality car accidents and where car Mm -hmm. accidents hit human beings that the blood is very bright. Um, yeah. At least right after, you know. Well, and for, for a decent amount of time after, you know, they get there 13 minutes later, it shouldn't be dark and purple and almost black. And that's yeah, what they I were mean, stating it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this was the, this was the, after this last autopsy is when this was determined, we talked about the congestion in the lungs. As a result, the grand jury then changed the ruling now from a probable homicide to a definite homicide. So at this point, and this in is only after this is only after they have reopened the case because the dumb dumb Emmy Malik had closed right. the case already and called an accidental right. death. Gotcha. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Gotcha. So they they start getting some anonymous tips. There's some weird stuff happening. Uh, people are saying some weird things that are perking up the ears of people in the town. All right. So we've got some drug trafficking talk, uh, this and that. But in late December of 1988, the grand jury that investigated the case released their final report. Um, They stated that the deaths were the result of foul play, but they had no indictments issued. Um, They did urge authorities to continue to investigate their deaths and drug problems in that county. There were a lot of drug. There's quite a bit of drug running in that county. In March of 1990, Kevin and Don's manner of death were officially changed from accidental to homicide on every kind of record. So basically, that's the facts of the case. That's what we do know. So let's talk about all the things that run in periphery to it. Okay. so we have we're just going to start. We're going to start with the witnesses, because I think that to hear about the witnesses and the things that happened to them uh that's going to set a scene or paint a picture for you better than anything else I could probably do. There was a bar, a nightclub uh, named Gigi's. This guy named Mike Cruck owned it. Uh, there was a, a man named Jerry that had left there one night, gone home. Um, he's driving kind of slow. He'd been drinking. He's trying not to get apprehended or, you know, have any interaction with law. He states that he sees to that he's pulled up and he sees this car, a cop car pull up with two boys. So like one is um, pushed up against a telephone pole. One is uh, he's, well, he said one guy was on a motorbike and, and drove off. One guy was like kind of pushed against a telephone pole and another guy was kind of down on the ground and a deputy's car was right there. And two men were out there with the boys, like roughing them up. Oh. So he, he gets gone. So he, he goes off, but that was his, that was his statement. So we're going to move right along. 
take notes if you want because this is right. this is insane. All right, before we move along and yes. it gets even more insane, I'd like to take a minute really quick to talk about how much we love Ghost Bed. They have been a loyal sponsor since day one. All of our fans have raved about them since day one. Everybody that we know, if you go back and look at all, I don't know, 1,700 of our reviews, um, 1,200 of them talk about ghost beds as well. David O in the chats just bought a new ghost bed pillow. I actually just got a ghost bed, another ghost bed pillow last night, uh, yesterday. Yesterday it came in the mail. I love it um, because my wife is pregnant. She needs more pillows. And why not? Why not have more ghost bed pillows? Every mattress has a 20 year warranty. You can try them out for not 99 nights, but 101, baby. If you don't like it, you can send them back. No hard feelings, but you won't. One of our favorite parts about go beds is that each mattress has that cooling technology. So if you get hot, like they do in our Kansas in the summer, you can always oh, yeah, stay cool. Do. Stay cool while staying hard. That's my motto. GhostBed also offers bundles so that you can get everything you need that you don't have to really think about it. Just choose from their four mattresses and pick your bundle. Whether you just need a mattress and a frame or you want it all, I want it all. I want it all. I want it now. That song came out in 1987 as well. Whether you just need a mattress and a frame or you want it all like their cooling pillows and sheets, you can get the best bang for your buck. Right now, GhostBed is offering a flash sale. 40% off of ghost bed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base. And I think you can get an additional 10% off of that 40. If you leave your email address um, or 35% off of everything. If you use the promo code Wolfpack at ghostbed.com forward slash Wolfpack, it's $35 a month, zero down 0% financing. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash Wolfpack. Uh, listen guys, it sleeps so good. It's scary. Mother's day is right around the corner. Get your mother and your mommy a ghost bed pillow, a ghost bed mattress, those cooling sheets, the ghost bed topper. Get her something from ghost bed. She's not going to see it coming. And mommy, <laughs> she's not going to see it coming. You get what I'm saying there? But maybe she will later that night. So uh, ghostbed.com forward slash Wolfpack. All right. Back to you, Andrea. This is actually my favorite part of the story. So we just talked about a guy who owned a nightclub and this guy, Jerry, left the nightclub, saw a guy speeding off on a motorcycle and two boys getting roughed up by two men that came out of a deputy's car. All right. Moving right along. we got a guy named Keith. Excuse me, McCaskill. Uh, Keith, at the time, was there's some whispers that he might be implicated in taking place in part of part of their murders. Um in he, sorry, just soon after the boys died, Sheriff Steed was up for reelection and he started acting super weird. This McCaskill guy. All right. He started acting like he was going to die. Like he started kind of putting affairs in orders, acting as though his life was not going to uh, be going on much longer. So he said, if he said, if the sheriff loses this election, I'm going to die. Well, that's what happened because on November 10th of 1988, uh, McCaskill was stabbed. He was stabbed over 113 times. Oh, dude, it's the fucking Clintons, man. Over 113 times. You just wait for it. Um, and that, so that was, that was just a couple days after the guy lost the reelection. So then we've got this guy named Ron. I apologize. Jerry had not left Gigi's. Jerry was just out in town and saw that. We have Ron, who did leave Gigi's. 
Um, he kind of has the same account as Jerry in terms of the boys and a police car. Uh, he actually identified the two police officers as Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell. We'll talk about them in a moment. Um, and now we are moving forward. All right. So we're just going to go by year. So now it's 1989. Okay. We have Ronald Smith. Keep in mind, these are all of our, our either people kind of implicated in the murders or people who are potential witnesses in the murders. Okay. okay. So Ronald Smith was 19 years old. Um, he was a bit developmentally disabled uh, to the point that he wouldn't be able to quite understand the justice system and things like that could easily be taken advantage of. Uh, McCaskill that we just talked about, the guy who was afraid he was going to die. The right. sheriff lost his election, right? But then he was stabbed all those times. So yeah. this kid, Ronald Smith, the murder of McCaskill was pinned on him. Let's remember <sighs> that that this Ronald Smith kid, so he's 19. They said he was very tall and very, very skinny. Uh, he's the developmentally delayed one. McCaskill, the guy that he's that the murder was pinned on him for, was over 6'3", 200 and some pounds. Big old beard, like big dude. Mm-hmm. Um this kid didn't stab him 113 times. Like, I'm sorry. But the story goes that this kid was charged. Um, he didn't fully understand what was going on when he was interviewed. He was uh, very, very skinny. He stated that he showed up to McCaskill's house to pick up some antiques that his mother was buying from McCaskill. So he just goes to get these antiques. Uh, he said that three men wearing clown masks busted in. One had a gun and the other two had knives. And he said that he was held at gunpoint while the other two stabbed McCaskill to death. Uh, They did say that the crime scene, as you can imagine, with 113 stab wounds was like a war scene. The whole house was just covered in blood. Um, So these two men stab him to death. They then force Ronald, this kid, to stab him after he was dead and took a Polaroid picture of it while he was doing it and threatened that they would use this against him. This was disregarded in trial. He was thrown in jail for 10 years uh, for this. Uh, The thought here is that uh, maybe as sheriff was leaving office, he was starting to clean house and tie up some loose ends. That's where you kind of start getting your head a little bit. All right, let's move right along. Keith Conley. Keith was friends of Kevin and Don. So he was around their age, the boys that were murdered after uh, their deaths. People said that Keith started acting just really weird. He started becoming incredibly withdrawn. A little bit you could understand that was his buddy, right? Or his buddies. Um, But he wouldn't talk about it when asked. Finally, his father essentially just, you know, faced him to speak to him. You can't, you know, you can no longer go or do whatever if you don't tell me what's going on. He stated that on the night that Don and Kevin died, he had been with them. And he said that he was on a motorcycle and they were on foot and they were smoking some pot. They were just kind of cutting up and having a good time. And he said that a cop car pulled up and and he drove off. So this is right in line with the stories that we're hearing with the story from the other witness, Jerry, right? He said he saw two boys on the sidewalk and a motorcycle speed off and his cop car pull up, right? So Keith was supposed to testify in front of the grand jury. So they reopened the grand jury. uh, You're going to hear me uh, reference a lot of people who were to then testify in the grand jury. Uh, The grand jury was for them to basically 
alter or change the diagnosis of death, the cause of death, and to make it homicide. So that's what all of this is approaching when I talk about the grand jury, okay? So Keith was supposed to testify in front of the grand jury. He died just a few days later. The story Why? goes that he that he mm -hmm, he crashed. So the official record is that he crashed his motorcycle into the back of a truck on the what? road. Witnesses that were on that highway when he was driving, though, said that he was fleeing from a car that was very obviously chasing him. More than one witness said, no, it looked like he was oh, being chased by this car gosh. and he was being chased by this car. And when he swerved, that did cause him to then slam into the back of this truck. But um, witnesses that were on the scene to assist after he crashed stated that his throat was slit and they were all very like in awe because they knew this, this didn't look like anything that happened from the wreck. There was no autopsy performed and old Fami Malik, that ME that we love so much, ruled the death accidental. What? This is like Dude, this is like, a, no this is like real life, like... Uh, that FBI agent that life. was exploring the um, the refugee children that were unaccounted for during mm -hmm. during Hillary's little her thing mm -hmm. when that she hung herself from a doorknob in the hotel room, mm -hmm. like this has those kinds of feelings to it, like where it's oh, like, it's dude, no way did this bitch it, just break open this case and then kill herself for doing for for yeah. like, you know, like every FBI yeah. agent's dream is to open up a case like this and then she kills herself. You know, yeah. get the fuck out of here. I'll um, never kill myself. So if I die in a motorcycle noted. accident, noted. I don't even drive a motorcycle. So, right. All right. So that was, that was, uh, That's Keith was his name. Keith Conley. All right. So two weeks later, two okay. weeks later, all right. Greg Collins was subpoenaed to testify in front of the grand jury. Greg got called in to meet with special prosecutor Dan Harmon. So Dan Harmon, we're going to talk a lot about this guy. He had just been brought in as an outside guy. So that looks positive, right? Okay. Not this yeah. internal corruption. He's the outside guy. Um, he was, Dan Harmon was to be the special prosecutor in the case. So he quickly latched on to, thank you, Dad. I'm so sorry that we have pictures. Um, that's Dan Harmon. Actually, if you want to go on dead and put up a picture of, uh, the boys of Don and Keith, there's, I've got two or three. It doesn't really matter. Or Kevin, excuse me. So that's the boys guys. If you're just listening, we've got Don on the left and Kevin on the right, just, you know, happy smiling teenage boys in the eighties. There's nothing um, to say one way or another there. So, all right. So Greg Collins was subpoenaed to testify. Dan Harmon, as he was appointed the special prosecutor in the case, quickly latched on to the families of Don and uh, Keith. Sorry, I keep wanting to call him Kevin. Of Don and Keith, and basically was like, "Let me help you out. I'll, you know, I'll do this case for you, whatever." So Greg got called in to meet with Don Harmon. Not long after their meeting, Greg disappeared. Um, on January 22nd, 1989, Greg's body was found in Prescott, Arkansas, in a wooded area. He had three holes in his body from a shotgun. Okay, so listen up. He had three shotgun wounds to his body, one in his face and two in his chest. There are differing accounts. Some say three to his face. Most things say one to face, two to chest. Um, 
so we have bring in old Malik again, our Emmy, right? So he's tasked with this examination. Um, Fami Malik rules Greg's death as a suicide. Get the fuck out of here, dude. I've never, I've worked, I don't know how many suicides. I've never, I have, I think maybe once somebody shot themselves twice. And that's because they blew half their chin off and then they finished the rest of themselves off quickly after. But nobody shoots themselves in the chest and in the face with a fucking shotgun. When you would have no, you would have no breath left in you once you pulled that trigger the first time with a shotgun. Just the impact alone. And we don't know um, Greg Collins' involvement in the case, just that he was asked to testify. Um, all right, so there's that one. Put that one what? aside. Make a note on that. Okay. Dude, so everybody in this case is just fucking dying. Dropping, 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 and none of it makes sense. All right. So what's like so what's when- what's happening with it now? Like I mean, I mean with with all this technology we've had to figure it out by now right okay so in march of 1989 a tip came in about daniel bearden uh he was in the same age range as kevin and don daniel was had been missing for about eight months a tip came in that he would be found buried near an arkansas river he's keep in mind this was 19 this was i said 89 i believe so this was march yeah. of 89 their deaths occurred in 1987 in august of 87 okay it's so like a year and a half later um he had been missing for eight months so okay uh he that he would be found buried near an arkansas river a piece of his shirt confirmed it be his was found but uh he sold weed occasionally and was summoned to testify in front of the grand jury but his body has never been found all right, oh moving right along. God. I'm not done. Can you believe it? The fucking Clintons killed this dude. We're going to talk about it. Jeffrey Rhodes. Uh, Jeffrey was 21 years old. He knew Dan and Kevin. Excuse me. Gosh, I'm killing this. Don and Kevin. Jeffrey said that Don told him before he died that he knew quite the drug dealer. This is a kid. He's trying to score some pot. There's no dispensaries. You know, a long time ago, they got to find somebody. So he said he knew a, a great drug dealer. Jeffrey told his mother he was afraid for his life. He called his dad in Texas saying he had to get out of town because he knew, quote, too much about the boys on the tracks and Keith McCaskill. Keith was the big dude that was stabbed in his house. Right. Okay. And potentially implicated in the murder of these boys. Just two days after Jeffrey says this about needing to leave that he knew too much. His motorcycle was found on the side of the highway. It was upright, leaning on its kickstand. A week later, his body was found near Benton, Arkansas, in a dumpster. He had been shot in the head. His hands, feet, and head had been partially sawed off, and he'd been set on fire. An anonymous tip was called in later, saying a police officer had pulled him over and put him in his car. There was talk that the Benton PD was tied in with the Alexander Police Department and the Prescott Department as well. So the last thing we see of him is what a witness says was that he got pulled over on his bike and put in a police car. And we don't see him again until his body's found sawed and burned and shot in a dumpster a few counties over. God, dude, this fucking police department is insane. In July of 1989, Richard... Uh, Richard Winters was killed. He was shot in the face with a shotgun during a robbery that went bad. Talks ensued that this was actually a setup as Richard had been subpoenaed to testify in the grand jury hearing. 
I mean, how many how how many murders does this town have per year? They don't even have that many people. So I guess this is countywide, though, not like city proper, where there weren't that many people. There there were more. Doesn't people matter. Let's like, just but... say, like Wake County probably takes sixty four homicides a year. If you do sixty four homicides a year, and fucking six of them all have to do with one case, within a matter of months, weeks, months. That's like red flag city like obviously something's been done about this now like it's been reopened right okay so not too long after this james milan this one's gonna if you've not blown your lid yet this one's gonna do it not long after this james milan was found dead in his home he had been decapitated okay please keep this this in mind he was evident evidently an eyewitness to the Barry Seals event. We're going to talk about Barry Seals. And so this guy was in the wrong place at a lot of wrong times. He was also evidently an eyewitness to what happened to Don and Kevin the night of their deaths. So Fami Malik, the ME, ruled that James died from a bleeding ulcer. <laughs> Do you remember the part where he was missing a head? <laughs> <laughs> Do you lose your head when you have an ulcer? So listen to this. So Okay, so the dude's decapitated. He gets him in, does his exam. It was an ulcer. Everybody's like, what okay. in heaven's name are you saying? So he said that what happened was that he had died from an ulcer, but that the guy's dog chewed his head off. Okay. Well, that's not really believable, but let's say you believe it, except okay. for... um. Soon after, someone found James's head a couple of blocks away in someone's dumpster. So when M Malik heard this, the doctor, he stated that, well, that's because the dog regurgitated the head. Into a dumpster? A whole head? What is he, a boa constrictor? What? This is so fucking bizarre. This isn't real. It doesn't seem real. I mean, it's wild. It is real, but my goodness. Oh, my God. All right. So, June 1990, a man was found dead in the cab of his truck. His name was Jordan Kettleson. Uh, he was rumored to have a part in the deaths of Don and Keith, as well as Kevin McCaskill. He had a shotgun shot to the face and was cremated before an autopsy could be performed. And there was, an there was no investigation into his death. All right. So let's talk a little bit about some events in 1990. In 1990, Assistant U.S. Attorney Bob Gover was started a secret federal investigation into drug trafficking in central Arkansas. All right. So he okay. appointed Gene Duffy as assistant prosecutor to be head of a drug task force that supplied information to Bob Gover's investigation. Okay. So everything that we know that we've been talking about right now, all of this stuff was organized and put together by Gene Duffy. I will send you guys some websites to look at. There's so much more information and sent to Bob Gover. So she gets all this information compiled, sends it over to him as she's learning it. Okay. In every instance, remember us talking about, um, Dan Harmon, the special prosecutor that was sent in from another town, like out or an outside right. guy, his name kept popping up. All of these witnesses and their stories, et cetera. So in May of 1990, Dan Harmon became prosecutor general and immediately started calling for Gene Duffy to be fired. 
Okay. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> so she, but she's starting to get heavy on his name, right? Because he keeps popping up in all of these witness accounts and these people that are subpoenaed to be and there or subsequently, his name is just kind of everywhere woven through this. So he gets hired on. That immediately starts trying to get her fired. In January of 91, he was in office um, as Saline County Prosecutor and took over her task force. So he was able to just take over her task force that right. she had been appointed. Um, he convinced a judge to issue a subpoena for Jean Duffy to bring all the evidence she had against him. It's like one man court, okay? She ignored the subpoena because she wanted to protect any remaining like family members that were alive. Um, any witnesses that were potentially still alive, if there were any, um, and the family members of the already deceased. But since she ignored it, they did put out a warrant issued for her arrest and a $50,000 hit was put on her life. The FBI actually verified that hit. Uh, in June of 91, U.S. attorney, she spent like, by the way, just like, I think 15 days in jail or it was something small. In June of 91, U.S. attorney um, Chuck Banks shut down the investigation and publicly cleared Dan Harmon's name of any implications of wrongdoing. So this was started in May of 1990 in June of 91, it gets shut down. Meaning this whole investigation, this special drug task force, all of this stuff we're done. We don't need it. And Dan Harmon has been completely cleared in any implications, no matter how his name came up in these witness testimonies. In August of that same year of 91, Dan Harmon refused a state ordered drug test. It was something that was just par for the course for state employees. He right. refused to take it. Um, <clears throat> he spent 18 days in jail, but remained. But while he spent 18 days in jail because he refused to take the drug test that the state ordered, he remained the count, the Saline County prosecutor with zero repercussions. What a fucking dirtbag. Yeah. So in 1993, we are wrapping up this boring timeline of it here in a second, guys. Um, I don't think it's boring, but uh, it's just. No, it, this is insane. So in 1993, Tommy Niehaus approached Linda Ives. Linda is Keith Ives' mother. Linda sadly died in the year 2021. But prior to that, Linda worked mercilessly and tirelessly to figure this out because she was as blown okay. away as we were. She did right. grassroots I mean, she worked hard on and her. And what year was this? Um, well, I'm going. She died in 2021, but this was back in 1993. That this Tommy, is when she was doing all of her research. Was in oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they died in '87, okay. so she was pretty much until right. the time she died, she was working on this. Wow. So Tommy Neenhouse went to her. He was at this point 18 years old, so he had been 12 years old at the time of Don and Kevin's deaths. Right. All right. Okay. He said that that night he and his buddies were playing by the railroad tracks. He said he saw lights on and near the tracks and it caught their attention. He said there were three men and two other men, like smaller men. So he couldn't tell if they were like teenagers or what. They just weren't like big men, like the first three that seemed like teenagers. Um, they kind of inched closer, he and his buddies, so they could kind of be nosy. He said that um, the three men were calling out and motioning for the two boys to come back to them. Tommy stated that it looked like they didn't really want to do this. Then they heard a gunshot and they got and saw a flash of light and this scared them. You know, they're young. Uh, he said that the flashlight, the flash of light they saw when they heard the gunshot looked different than the flashlights the men were holding. So I think he's just verifying it was actually just the muzzle. Right. You know, the, or the, right. The muzzle the shot, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. He said he and his friends got scared and ran off. And when he asked if anyone looked familiar or recognizable to him, he said he recognized his mother's boyfriend, Dan Harmon. Get the fuck out. Right. He had been terrified. He'd been living with that since he was 12 and he finally felt like he needed to say something. <sighs> All right. So we have Charlene Wilson. Charlene Wilson was involved in a different criminal case at the time in 1993, but she testified in 1987 that she was dating Dan Harmon. So this is a different woman than that. Tommy, you know, Tommy's mother was dating Dan Harmon. So was this gotcha. Charlene Wilson was dating Dan Harmon. Dan Harmon was also married at the time, but he had a lot of time on his hands um, to hang out on railroad tracks and with other women, evidently. So she said that he kept her high most of the time and that she did go on some dr drug drops with him. She said that if they, cause they asked her how they could further the investigation or what kinds of things they needed to look into uh, with him. And she said, Oh, well, if you want some help with this, you just need to talk to his ex-wife and ask her about their money, where all their money went. They should also, she told them that they should also look into criminals with drug offenses that had been let off the hook, that they should look into missing evidence that related to drugs. Uh, she said that she drove with Dan to meet a man named Keith and Alexander, and he matched the description of Keith McCaskill. That was the big burly guy that was stabbed in his home. Right. Uh, she said she stayed in the car with a bag of Coke, like he tossed a bag of Coke to her and told her to kind of just sit tight. But she said that he ran back to the car um, hurriedly and threw something in the car. They all he hopped in and they drove home and he told her she needed to shower immediately. The thing that he threw in the car, a green tarp. Oh. Right. Holy shit. So pretty much Don Harmon is our guy He's, here. Well, one of them, right? I feel like right. we're, we're probably dealing with a handful of things here. So keep in mind that uh, that where does this Harmon do that now? I'll tell you. Don't I don't want to tell okay. the ending. Okay, right? I know. I'm just I'm I'm stressing out here. He's still it's alive. Intense. He's still alive. Imagine well, that. Look, let's, let's freaking get him on the show. Let's get his side of the shit. Yeah, I think I'm all good. Um, <laughs> I don't want to I would much rather. I literally called the a Georgia corrections facility, the only one that houses death row inmates, to talk to someone there about the protocol on coming to visit a death row inmate for an interview. And I'm happy to do I'll do Let's make a weekend trip out of it. Yeah. I don't want anywhere near this mess. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, right? that's fine. That's safe. Um, so the investigator, as he was talking to her and interviewing her, really felt like she was holding something back. Um, he believed what she was saying fully, but he just thought she wasn't giving him the whole story. Right. So after he talked to her a little bit more, she actually did change her story a bit and said that she did get out of the car. She said that she walked to the tracks with that. He wanted her out of the car with him. And so she walked to the tracks with Don Harmon, Dan Harmon, excuse me. And they met up with Keith McCaskill. Oh. And remember, I told you Keith McCaskill had been like there were whispers that he was implicated in the boys right. murders. Right. There were two other men there as well. They were all angry because they said some kids had messed up their drop. Soon after, two policemen show up with the boys. Oh. This is interesting. This matches up to a lot of other stories we're hearing. These people didn't talk to each oh. other. One of the boys was dead 
and the other wasn't. She said that Keith McCaskill stabbed, or no, excuse me, she said that he killed the one that was still alive and then forced her, Charlene, to stab him so she wouldn't talk. Whoa. That's not the first time we've heard that, right? Right. In fact, in his own death, men stabbed him and made that and other made boy stab fucking, him to yes. take a picture. Oh, my gosh. So we're seeing a Dude, lot of parallels and a lot of very this, like You think after, like, behavior. the Murdoch shit, if the Murdoch stuff happened, like, you don't think they could reopen this this case? That's <laughs> crazy. But so, wait, so speaking of Murdoch... This is another thing I thought, I feel like every case we do now, I'm going to relay it to that somehow. But when I was reading how Dan Harmon came in as special prosecutor as like an outside guy, and that looked promising for the family, and they looked forward to a different perspective, and you know, someone not in the good old boy network there. He went straight to the family to offer his services and to help them. Murdoch did that. When he went to the hospital during the his the son that he eventually was convicted of murdering. But when that boy got in that boat wreck and that girl, Mallory Beach died and all those kids were in the hospital banged up, he and grandpa immediately got to the hospital. He went to the, the buddy's hospital room, not his son who was piloting or who was driving the boat to his son's friend's room to say, you were driving, weren't you? And um, he was like, no, I wasn't driving the boat. And he was like, oh, yeah, you were driving. And then he turns to the family and says, don't worry. I'll represent you guys. It'll all be fine. Of course, they didn't. They're like, no, he wasn't driving. But he tried to do that, right? He tried to cover their case. So it makes sense that he's going to come in, right, and and basically rewrite the narrative or just control the case from that end of it. All right. So, oh, golly. Um, so she said, so that was Charlene Wilson's testimony that or yeah that she testified that keith mccaskill killed the woman that was still alive and forced her to stab him so that she was now an accomplice as part of it Jeez. so i need you to know this um that don't you worry though don't you worry because dan Harmon um starts catching wind of this as they're talking to her and mm -hmm. starts threatening the lead investigator uh Dan Harmon was successful in actually having her locked up himself. He locked her up with a, he gave her like a 30 year sentence for some trumped up charges some very, which she had already been in trouble for like Coke and stuff, but he made up some right. charges and was successful in putting her in prison with a sentence of like 31 years. She did not serve Jeez. all of it. Uh, she served at least four years of it though. And actually she got out early because Mike Huckabee pardoned her when word of all of this started getting out. Um, she was a Huckabee pardon. Cool. Okay. So her statement, along with that Tommy Niehaus statement, led to an FBI investigation. So in April of 1994, the FBI called Jean Duffy. If you remember, she was the one appointed yeah. um, as the assistant prosecutor to lead that, that task force, the drug task force. The FBI called her to request her cooperation of the investigation. At this point, she had skipped town because when they subpoenaed yeah. her to testify and she refused, they uh, um, sentenced her to a little bit of time in jail, put out that hit on her life. She got out and skipped out on town. So she's been quiet. Um, at this point now, think about this. We're into 19, what I say, 1994. Who's president? Old Slick Willie has now escalated oh, from governor shit. to president. Okay. Uh, so he was governor the whole time all of this stuff was going on. He is now president. 
And in 1995, the FBI promptly dropped this investigation. They stated, quote, based on the foregoing, there is no reason for the FBI to continue investigating this matter. Sincerely yours, Ivan C. Smith, special agent in charge, FBI. They dropped it quietly without saying anything else. So this had this investigation had really been building and there was a lot, a lot, a lot of evidence. Um, and it very quickly and quietly got squashed. In November of 1996, Harmon renamed on his um, renamed as prosecutor. November of 96, Harmon was renamed as prosecutor. Charlene had been in jail for a few years. Dan Harmon's wife was arrested. So get this to Dan Harmon's wife. Now he's back as prosecutor. You can't get the guy to go away. His wife is then arrested a few counties over with massive amounts of coke. Do you know where that coke came from? Where? The Saline County Evidence Room. That his wife had. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Dan Harmon finally asked to resign, was asked to resign, excuse me, when he assaulted a reporter that asked about his wife's arrest. In April of 1997, a grand jury federally indicted Dan Harmon on racketeering, manufacturing methamphetamines, um, witness tampering, retaliation against an informant. Two other task force men indicted were indicted on those charges. After he was sentenced, get this, when Dan Harmon was sentenced, 900 criminal cases were thrown out that he had been involved in. 900. Oh, shit. <laughs> In 1999, he was disbarred. In 2006, he was released from prison. In 2008, he's back, as of 2008, back on the payroll with the Saline County organizing files for the circuit clerk. In February 2010, Shut up. Mm -mm, in February 2010, he was charged with selling morphine near a school, but they didn't have a lot on him, and so they acquitted him. Um, I have looked and looked and looked. The last I can find, I, I can't tell if he's working. Now that's that's public records, and I just didn't have time to get around to it. But um, last we know, he was working uh, back on payroll with St. Lynn County. Um, Linda uh, tried. Linda Ives, Keith's mother, filed multiple multiple civil suits over the years. In January of 2018, this I'm going to say it. Please take it and just forget it. But I'm going to say it because, like I said, my chats are turned off. So I'm sure somebody's been talking about it in the chats. Billy Jack Haynes, he was a former wrestler, WWF, said that he was there that night. He said that he had videoed it, that he was the muscle of the operation. These are baseless claims. No one has been able to corroborate anything that he's saying. He also, at some point, I think, said that like Stone Cold Steve Austin had done something murdery i don't know you know i don't know it, it sounds like the dude's got like cte or something like his mind's not working straight and he wanted to be a part of this so there you go now these are some peripheral events to remember from the 1980s in the 1980s governor clinton appoints webb hubble to head a new state ethics commission his first task was to weaken weaken ethics legislation currently under consideration by exempting the governor from some of its most rigorous prevent provisions mainly saying uh it's gonna be, you're gonna have a less of a uh slap on the wrist for things right right sure so shirlene wilson remember her the one who said she was yep. there that night and had to stab that boy According, right. so let's take it back to the 80s now when they were investing or questioning her in the early 90s. According to investigative to an investigative reporter, uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, Charlene Wilson 
flies cocaine from Mina. We're going to talk about Mina, Arkansas, to a pickup point in Texas. Other drugs, she and others say, are stuffed into chickens for shipping around the country. Wilson also serves as, quote, the lady with the snow at these toga parties that they attend and that are attended by Bill Clinton. A drug pilot um, in the 1980s brings a Cessna 210 full of cocaine into eastern Arkansas where he is met by his pickup. His pickup for this cocaine helicopter? A state trooper in a marked police car, Arkansas. The pilot recalls years later that it was a very good place to load and unload. All right. So um, in 1982... Major drug trafficker Barry Seal was under pressure from Louisiana cops and relocated his operations to Mena, Arkansas. So Barry Seal was in collaboration with the cartels coming out of Medellin, Colombia, right? So transporting cocaine from Colombia to teeny tiny little town of Mena, Arkansas. This worked very, very well for him. He actually um, got found out about. He became a CIA informant uh, and he did this. Um, until he was, I think he was executed as he was approaching a donation bin at a Salvation Army in 1986, I believe. So it was prior to the boys' deaths, but right on the heels of it. So in 1982, a DEA report uncovered by Evans Pritchard cites informants claiming that a key Arkansas figure and backer of Clinton smuggled cocaine from Columbia, South America, inside racehorses to hot springs. In 1983, according to a later account in the Tampa Tribune, planes flying drugs into Mina, Mina in coolers marked, quote, medical, suppli medical supplies are met by several people close to then-Governor Bill Clinton. Hot Springs police record Roger Clinton, his brother, during a cocaine transaction, and Roger says, go get some for my brother. He's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner. At this time, Roger Clinton was said to have been snorting around four Ks of coke per day. In 1987... Um, some believe the boys died because they accidentally intercepted a drug drop. There's some other information. I don't know how heavy to weigh this, but that suggests the drop may have actually at this point no longer been drugs, but cash, gold and platinum. Part of a series of things through which those working in U.S. intelligence were being reimbursed. According to one version, the boys were blamed in order to cover up the theft of the drop by persons within the Dixie Mafia and Arkansas political machine. If you have time, you need to look those up. In 1990, Charlene Wilson tells a U.S. grand jury investigating drugs in Arkansas that she provided cocaine to Clinton during his first term and that once the governor was so high, he fell into a garbage can. I don't care about that. The federal drug investigation is shut down within days of her testimony. So the, she testifies. And that was when I told you, you remember how all of a sudden they just dropped that investigation entirely done. That's when it ended. Um, so. That's when she was arrested by Harmon himself. Um, but when she testified that about supplying Clinton Coke during his first term, the investigation was shut down entirely. So let's wow. talk a little bit about this. The last piece I've got before we um, before we head head out is Gene Duffy's account on all of this. Gene Duffy was the one that was headed up to be the, the lead in that drug task force. So these are her words. I'm just going to read them um, word for word here. She said, a problem with swallowing any conspiracy theory is the murky connections. However, in this case, the evidence of a conspiracy between MENA CIA operatives and Saline County public official thugs brings the big picture into focus. It is important to understand all those involved do not sit around at a conference table and discuss how to pull off a conspiracy. 
To the contrary, I have spoken to several ex-CIA operatives and a CIA contract pilot who occasionally flew the Saline County drop. They all explain that any one person in an operation knows only what is necessary for a specific assignment. That's true. That's how this works. It's a need to know. Everything is very compartmentalized, and that minimizes uh, crosstalk, cross-pollination between people, um, culpability, um, all sorts of things, right? So they all explain um, that it's a need to know. This fits with statements made by some of the witnesses claiming to have picked up drugs from the tracks. They were told the drugs were coming up from Louisiana by train, which I believe was deliberate misinformation. Yet it is the role of Dan Harmon in this story that is most convincing that there was and is a multi-level bipartisan conspiracy. You guys take yourself back to the Contra time. So you're looking at Iran Contra. You're looking at the Mina drug drop. Yes. So my drug task force provided substantial evidence of Harmon's involvement in illegal drug activity to the 1990 federal grand jury. Harmon countered with a smear campaign discrediting me and my task force. Again, this is like an op-ed, but it's with some of her actual right. evidence she had, that she had procured. She was a prosecutor. So at the time, I didn't know the cause of Harmon's muscle, but the effect was clear. Banks protected Harmon from a multi-count indictment by a federal grand jury. From a larger perspective, Democratic District Prosecutor Dan Harmon was cleared by Republican U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks, who was rewarded with a federal judgeship nomination by Republican President George Bush, who is a former CIA director. Fucking so. dirtbags, man. That whole Epstein shit, like, I don't know, they're not going to be able to keep it, you know, there's too many podcasts out, there's too many uh, YouTube tuber guys out there, there's too many bloggers, like TikTok, I mean, people are uncovering this stuff left and right. The government yeah. can't hide this forever. Uh, Tucker Carlson, is back yeah. on Twitter today. I saw that. Well, I just, heard he's going to start a show back, right? Yeah, and, and he says that he's he's going after uh, Fox News. They're suing Fox News, and and his little speech on Twitter tonight was, I mean, dude, I, I'm I literally my words out of my mouth were he will be suicided very soon, very soon, because he basically said on his show he's going to expose exactly how the the media has been manipulating you guys and how he's been a part of that machine for many years. And now he's going to come out and he's going to tell the world exactly how this information is starts out as good information. And then is turned into misinformation by Fox news, by CNN, by all the mainstream media. So all of them, this dude has got his time is his time's coming. Um, man, what a bizarre case. Uh, I can't even imagine how much time so you spent on that. A lot. Let's follow it up on our Patreon, man. I want to, I want to, yeah. can we get a hold of this lady? Should we see if we can yeah. get her on? Yeah, she talks. Let's do it. She interviews. Let's go. Let's go. Um, I'm excited to see that. Guys, uh, for myself and the beautiful Andrea Uplate, this has been another True Crime Tuesday night shift on Failure to Stop. Please share this with a friend. Hit the like and subscribe button on the YouTubes. Give us a five-star rating review on iTunes. And if you have already done that, please go over to Breaking Points Podcast. Breaking Points podcast with Crystal and Sager and give a five-star rating and review, listen to their show and tell them that they should get the failure stop guys on their show. I think if we hit them up enough, um, you know, we let you them know that, that we could be a law enforcement side of things or true crime side of things. I think we would be a great fit for their show to come on as a guest at some point. So also quick all the little love, shout out. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go for it. 
I'm also trying to catch you before you exited the show. Yeah, sure. Uh, so two things. Um, Angry Me has been sending us all some coffee, right? So yeah. I've been sipping on mine. You've been sipping on yours. Um, yeah. It's been really great. So thank you, Angry Me Productions. We appreciate that. And then I was on with um, Gret Beg at Beg. Gosh, Beg, I'm tired. Beg, Greg and Beth. Beg and Greth. Yeah. Beth and Greg for the for the the bars open podcast. Uh, we did that on Saturday. It doesn't matter. It'll drop Friday evening uh, live, I think. And they said they'd be in the chats chit chatting as they drop it. So that was a whole lot of fun. Ooh, we we'll share. A, we we'll be, we'll, we'll get the Wolfpack in that chat for yeah, a good time. I'm for that. It was a good time. For that. But sounds you great, guys. I hope you have a wonderful week. Yeah, man. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful week, and uh, we will see you tomorrow for last call. You got all the Tucker Carlson stuff, lots of other stuff going on in the news to get through tomorrow. So buckle in. We'll see you tomorrow for last call, which will drop to audio on Thursday. Um, thank you to ghostbed.com forward slash Wolfpack and Josh from Deadleg Media for editing this or for yes, producing it. Or um, we have our underpay producer, Elijah, who does all the pre-screening and pre-recording stuff for us and the post-production stuff for us. So thank you to our underpaid producers. Uh, and then, um, you know, just the whole team for failure to stop Jonathan and Drew and, and, and the whole squad, Jay Durrell. So until next time, guys, guns up and giddy up. Night y'all.